Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums Podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is cults in horror. We are joined by guest Robert P. Atone. As a warning, this is an incredibly spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you'd like to avoid spoilers for any of today's topics, especially Atone's book, The Vile Thing We Created, Rosemary's Baby, or entries from the Silent Hill franchise, then you should definitely turn back now. All that said, here we go. Let's get spooky. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm good. I took a nap earlier and uh, I just I was drooling on the pillow and that's what woke me up. And uh, so then I'm good. I was on the couch. Uh, I we have a, a remarkable couch. It's very comfy, cozy. And I was all snuggled up in blankets and everything. My wife was watching Empire Records on her phone and uh, I woke up to uh, a cold face from drool. So that was pretty weird. But we got there in the end. We got there in the no. end. As as Mondays do, right? It's just the worst. It is the absolute worst. We So, like, we watch a lot of Hulu. I'm a big Hulu guy. and But we don't have ad-free Hulu. And they show these god-awful commercials for this band called Almost Monday. And all I could think about is, like, why would you call your band that? It is the worst name ever because Monday is the worst goddamn day. And it's just, I'm like, you know, I teach and it's fine. Blah, it's a job. But at the same time, it's like Mondays are just awful. Like I dread them. I was covering for two teachers today. It's awful. I was like running back and forth between two classrooms. And it's like, what are we doing? Why is this the worst day ever? But it's just, yeah, no, it sucked. And so I got home, took a nap. Well, I had a little lunch, took a nap, did some stuff on the computer. And now I'm thankful. This is, this, you know, other than seeing my wife and hanging out with my wife, this is the best part of the day is talking to you. Sweet. I feel the same. And you just mentioned so many things that we're going to come back to. Um, the cool. teaching thing. Oy, oy, oy. We're going to have a whole conversation about that. Awesome. But starting with Hulu with ads. We yeah. also have Hulu with ads. I have never seen a commercial for Almost Monday. Dude, they're, it's just a terrible band. They're just, a, and I'm, you know what? I, that's unfair. They're probably a fun band. I don't want to make fun of them because they might be horror fans. I'm willing to bet they're not. But like, I I don't want to slam them too much. I don't want to harsh anybody's happy, but it's a terrible band name. You know, it's like when the, there's like movies, right? They don't want you to call, they don't want you to put bad or don't in your title of a movie. And yet two of my favorite movies are don't look now and bad timing. And they always say like, don't put those two words in the title of your movie. Cause it's not, it doesn't work out well and it, it lends it too easily to be made fun of in reviews and stuff. But uh, yeah, no, they're terrible. The, the band is, the name is terrible. The band I'm sure is fabulous, but I always mute it and it's just, it's just bad. It's just, it's not, it's not a good name. Nobody wants to be reminded that it's almost Monday. I don't care what you do. 
You don't want to be like you could have the coolest job in the world. Like your job could literally be like eating M&M peanuts as like a tester. And that could be, you know, if that's your job like that. But that could be terrible, too. And that could be something you don't want to be reminded of. I had I had M&M peanuts today. <laughs> I was about to ask. So that's why I'm, <laughs> I bought the family size bag, like the really big, like the pounder. Yeah. And because uh, I'm I have like a really weak will because well, I went to CVS. I got boosted today. Oh, all the anti-vaxxers just freaked out. <laughs> um, yeah, I got boosted today. So I was like leaving. I saw Candy. I got my wife her favorite treat. And I was like, oh, peanut M&Ms. Let's go. The pound bag. And I, I opened them in the car because I'm whatever I needed it. <laughs> this conversation is ridiculous so far. I love it. It's the same way I am with with any sort of books. We walked into the comic book store on Saturday, uh, just on our way to a brewery with our kids. And the you're one of those people. You one of those people bring the kids to the brewery. Well, okay. So the breweries around here are really weirdly catered to kids. Like there's they all do. They all do. They all have all these games and all this nonsense. They all do. Even the wineries out here are starting to do that, which makes me sick. I don't want to. I don't want to play games at a winery. I don't want to see kids run. No offense to everybody with kids. I don't want to see kids running around at a winery. I want to get drunk. I want to taste. I want to taste good wine. But you know what? Uh, To be fair, I did see the cutest kid I've ever seen in my life. The last time I was at the winery, this little girl was just so cute and like running around and just being so silly. And I was like, you know what? I'll, that kid can go to the winery. Other kids, no. But that kid, yes. But yeah, yeah. All right. So you're one of those people who brings the kid to the brewery. Yeah. Well, the, right. the, the, the brewery right next to us literally built a playground attached to the brewery. So there's like a kid section that you put your kids in the kid section and they can't escape. They're stuck there. And then you can go to the brewery and like hang out with each other and like glance over at the uh, at the at the playground to make sure like they're not dead, right? Yeah, they're not dead. They're still we're good. <laughs> whatever happened? Whatever happened to babysitters? Whatever happened to babysitters? Throw a kid 150 bucks for a couple hours and go out and enjoy your night. I'm so I'm sorry. It I'm was, also, see. This is why you said you felt triggered by the book, or not yes, triggered. The, oh my gosh, you felt targeted. We haven't by the book. introduced you as a guest yet. We haven't like gotten to I the know, topic I'm, at all yet. I'm <laughs> out of the canon. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No. So the way I was raised, like we had babysitters, maybe half the time, and the other half the time it was, eh, fend, your, fend for yourself. Like you probably won't die. You were probably big enough. So, you know, this feels like a continuation of that. Like, go run around the playground. We'll be right over there. Just scream loud if something actually happens. That's fair. I don't remember really. My sister, I have an older sister. She's nine years older. So she was kind of always my babysitter. But like, yeah, no, I I think from like the age of like 12 or 13 or something. Or no, probably like maybe 10 or 11. My parents were like, meh, he's fine. He could stay on his own. We're going to go to the movies your sister's out for the night, your brother's out for the night. And I'd be like, I'm going to play Street Fighter 2 Championship Edition all night. Okay, cool. But, you know, I'm going to drink, uh, you know, Dr. Pepper and uh, play Street Fighter and then probably watch something that's going to scare the shit out of me. And then everybody will be home by then. And then it's bedtime. Yeah. And there we go. All right. we We've got the segue into the horror stuff here now. So... Robert, for any guests that aren't familiar with you, what is your connection to the horror world? What is your little niche in this community? Like, what do you do? Yeah, 
I write um, spooky stuff. I write horror fiction. I'm very like I, I love writing. I love writing for adults. I love, but I also really love writing for young adults. And I, I'm really, really, really interested in the middle grade space. My young adult novel, The Triangle, is nominated for the Bram Stoker Award, which is it's like crazy. I think about it. I still think it's crazy. Like, I keep thinking it's not real. I keep thinking it's not like a real thing that has happened, but it's just really, really insane. I did um, I did a, a live reading on YouTube not long ago, and I was with uh, Evie Knight and Michael Cisco, and both of them are nominated, too. And I like not that I forgot that I was, but I was just like, oh, my God, these guys are nominated for Stoker Awards. And then they introduced me. They're like, oh, he's nominated. And I was like, oh, yeah, we all are like, that's crazy. But um, yeah, I keep forgetting about that. So like not forgetting, but you know what I mean? And um, so I've written stuff for adults, stuff for young adults. And really, there's no difference in writing for adults or young adults. Like there's just really no difference at all. And in fact, like you can get just as grisly. Um, or as brutal writing young adult fiction as you can for adults. There's rules for middle grade, but there's no rules for YA. And uh, I love that. I love that space. I actually really like the challenge of writing middle grade um, and not relying on some of the things that I would rely on writing for adults or for a young adult audience. But I have a adult, an adult, an, a, not an adult novel like porn, but an adult centric decidedly not young adult or decidedly not middle grade novel uh, coming out called The Vile Thing We Created, which you were kind enough to read and give me a really good quote about that I've used in a couple other <laughs> interviews because uh, it's just too damn good. I would use it as a blurb if all the blurbs weren't already in the book. <laughs> but I'm really excited about this book. I'm really excited about the cover. People who've read it so far have really enjoyed it. And they've had like a very gut reaction to it, which is what I was hoping for. So, uh, yeah, that's the new one that's out April 18th tax day. So when you get your yeah. refunds, <laughs> go on, go on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or bookshop and drop 18 bucks on uh, the file thing we created. I forget that tax day is a good thing for so many people because our family's in this odd situation where I've got like, a publicly gained salary and my wife is in the private sector. So th mm -hmm. it's always this coin flip for us about like, Oh my gosh, are we about to lose thousands of dollars or get thousands of dollars? I don't know. I know my, my salary gets listed uh, for the public as well. And I had uh, uh, somebody said to me one time, they saw my salary and they were like, Oh, pff, Oh yeah. It's so hard being a teacher. Right. And I was like, that's pre-tax bro. That's pre-tax. Like that's, you know, like dial it down. That's pre-tax and, and, uh, you know, property and all of that stuff. Like, so you don't understand. So, uh, yeah, people don't really get that. And like, you know, to be fair, like when I was a kid and I saw my teacher's salaries and stuff too, I didn't get that either. I didn't realize that that was pre-tax. So now that I think about it, they still weren't worth it. <laughs> Zing. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with that too. My wife, all of hers, you know, she has a private business, so all of her stuff is private as well. So it's must be nice. Must be nice. Are you you're not a teacher. What do you do? I OK, so we'll get into this more uh, okay. as we go. Right. I was a teacher until the very end of last year. 
And then I, I left teaching for a variety of reasons that I don't need to waste anybody's time with, but left teaching and got a job instead in a university. Um, I'm staff in a university now instead of faculty in a high school. So I Love tried it. to get out of the waters and stumbled ass backwards back into the waters. <laughs> well, it's got to be better than working in uh, public school education. It has to be. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I envy it's, you. It's tough. I envy you. Yeah, it's, it is. It's tough for everybody. Working at any point is difficult in any position, unless you're like a Fortune 500, my daddy owns the company type guy. Mm-hmm. Like that's got to be the coolest thing in the world. But <laughs> that's not us. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I would be a really great trust fund baby. If anybody wants to like, you know, funnel some money uh, into a trust fund for me, I won't even use it for me. I would use it for my wife um, just to buy her things anyway yeah. <laughs> so i write spooky stuff i write some yeah, nonfiction. So I yeah i write some nonfiction, um, which i i've actually really gotten into that as well and i'm actually working on in the back burner type thing i have four nonfiction projects that i'm developing right now they're in the very early stages and they are not specifically horror related One of them is about a very public figure. I don't want to say who. Another one is about wine. (laughs) And uh, I've got a lot of things kind of cooking with that. But I've I've got a lot of fiction work uh, cooking as well, including a book about very Long Island centric, which is where I live. It's the first thing that I'm writing that is specifically... Uh, first long piece of longer fiction that is specifically set on Long Island. You're gonna gonna go the jack of all trades route. You've got adult horror, you've got middle grade horror, you've got young adult horror, you've got the nonfiction. We're we're batting all over the place. Uh, I want to do the Jeff Strand thing, man. I want to you know cover cover all the bases. You know, he's someone that I admire a lot. So it's you know the, he's makes a living you know as a professional writer like that's incredible i don't know that i would be, ever be able to do that living in new york but it's like he's someone to really look up to i think so if he could do it then i all at the very least i could try yeah i i'm friends with daryl grizzle on facebook um and he he had a short film premiere at renegade film fest recently and was posting that, yeah, this is the movie that Jeff Strand's dead in the back of my pickup truck in. Like, wait, what are you talking about? Like, how is Jeff Strand popping up absolutely literally everywhere? He's just amazing. His whole his whole his whole vibe is just the best. Like him and Lynn and that Bridget Nelson's always with them too. Like the, the three of them are are literally just like rays of sunshine. Like they're just so much fun to spend time with, and they're just like the sweetest people on the planet so welcoming like so warm just wonderful people so it's nice when you see people who are like genuinely cool and like genuinely sweet like having success and like jeff is a good example of that lynn name one you know book that has a lynn hansen cover that isn't beautiful you know like she's amazing and bridget's book uh bouquet of viscera is just killer so you know just three awesome people that i've been very lucky to get to hang out with a little bit and Beautiful souls, wonderful people. Yeah. There's a lot of those in the horror community. 
Oh gosh, my broken record's going again. But yeah, I I love how the the horror community has so many of those kinds of people out in the forefront. Like that that has been a big driving force of me getting this podcast off the ground has been just the generosity of the big names being willing to be like, yeah, I'll come hang out with you for an hour. Sure, why the hell not? It's like yeah, you don't get that in so many other arenas. No, like uh, you know. Paul Tremblay didn't have to blurb my book, but he did. And it's a like good blurb. It's a really <laughs> good blurb. Thank you. He's he's been very supportive to me. He's he's so kind and in many ways like mentored me in, you know, many ways. Like he's he gets back to me all the time. And and he's, you know, he looks at he's looked at contracts for me. He's just been wonderful like i can't sing his praises enough and just a great guy and michael mast was my mentor with the hwa another one who's just beautiful and supportive and wonderful he actually was instrumental in getting this contract with hydra to publish the vile thing we created and uh can't thank him enough you know there's there's so many people who are are you know mentors without being like overly you, you know like overly mentory you know what i mean right. like there's, there's people who are like todd keesling i consider him a friend but he's also a mentor figure in many ways as well because he's another one who's just a fountain of information and free with it and i've yet to really meet anybody who is like no nah, i'm not going to talk about that no i'm not going to do it. like that everybody's very cool yeah. that i've you know gotten to know and uh it's nice to see. It really is. It's nice to see. It's not something that I found in my MFA program. Um, there were some nice. There's actually wonderful people in my MFA program, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't genre friendly. So like, you know, oh, you want to write fantasy? YA fantasy? You could do that. But the fact that I pitched horror, they're like, oh, well, we'll see how it goes. And it's like, yeah, we will see how it goes. And <laughs> I don't know, like it's nominated for a Stoker. So like, but like, you know, I, I you know, some of the some of the writing programs and stuff and the writing communities and stuff aren't as welcoming as others, I found. But the horror community has been uh, top to bottom. Everyone that I've talked to, whether it's, you know, an influencer like somebody with a podcast or you know, somebody with a really fabulous uh, social media following. People are accessible and people are kind and it's really nice to see. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that's been your experience as well. I've listened to the show a bunch. The only one I haven't listened to yet is Todd's because I want to reread Devil's Creek before you go into the spoilers with that, because I read it when it came out on Kindle and I just got the the hardcover, that beautiful hardcover. So yes, I'm chomping at the bit to reread that. It's so good, but it is so dense. <laughs> yeah. It's made, a big like, read when you get into it. Yeah. He's, he's ridiculous, man. That guy is just like unstoppable. He's the future. Okay. So let's go ahead and let's dive into, into the, the topic of the day here. We are going to talk about cults in horror, cultists in horror, uh, I think we've kind of gone back and forth on if we're, if we're talking about the cultists themselves or cults in general. So screw it. Let's just cover it all. <laughs> I want to take this episode on a somewhat non-traditional route in that usually with our episodes, what we do is we'll talk about 
the trope in general for a little bit, and then we'll talk about topic one, then we'll move to topic two, then we'll move to topic three, then we'll talk about all three of them together and sort of kind of use that sort of an angle. With your book, though, the vile thing we created, as I was reading it, I was realizing that the book itself lends a really good structure for this conversation. It starts with a very paranoid human element, and then we add the supernatural elements as we go. There's a very distinct part in the book where it's, oh, this would pair really well with Rosemary's Baby, and then we move into a part that pairs really well with Silent Hill. So what I want to do with this episode is I want to kind of follow the structure of the vile thing we created. I do not anticipate ruining the end of the book because that is something you need to experience for yourself. But I, I do expect, I, I do foresee us kind of going through the midpoint of the book a little bit here. Cool. All of that, if it's okay with you, Robert. Absolutely. Absolutely. I look forward to it. So to begin with, what yes. is your book, The Vile Thing We Created, about generally? Uh, what is the synopsis here? What are we diving into? <laughs> So uh, Lola and Ian are a youngish couple who are child-free, and they are very happy. They don't have any real wants. They're still very much in love. They're still very attracted to one another. They're still very interested in exploring their passions together. Um, Lola is a baker. That is her passion. Ian's passion is education. He is a teacher. Not, you know, that's me and my wife's jobs, but (laughs) not, you know, a little bit of life imitating art, I guess. But like they start to sort of what they sort of realize, and this is in the opening chapter, that they are being excluded from their social circle because they do not have children. And they have a very rational conversation about whether or not they should have kids. There is an incident that had happened when they had first started dating that resulted in some trepidation as to having children later on. But they do decide to go ahead with it because not only just for the the selfish reasons of like, oh, we want to save our social lives, but also because they truly think that they're ready for it and they think it's the next great adventure for the two of them. They don't know, of course, that it's it's going to turn out to not be such a great decision in the end. But that's where Lola and Ian are by the end of chapter one. They are pregnant, or rather Lola is pregnant. And Ian is really not ready for what happens, even though he does his best to try to convince himself that he is. Uh, he certainly is not. And neither is Lola, really. And she, you know, she bears the she takes the brunt of everything that happens because and, you know, I've, I, this is like just, you know, I firmly believe this. Women are infinitely stronger than men could ever dream of being. And uh, Lola is certainly that. And uh, thankfully, she could shoulder the difficult, you know, situations that happen in the book. But good Lord, is she tested? Yes. And it is very difficult for her. But yeah. So, yeah, that's the book. That's the, the premise. The 30,000 foot view, I guess. I kind of spoiled this uh, idea already, but something that I really enjoy cult horror for is 
you've got this great hodgepodge of human horror elements and supernatural horror elements, whereas a bunch of our other tropes, you have to focus on one or the other. It's either evil humans doing evil human things or supernatural nonsense. With cults, you get both of them. Um, you can have some really awful people with the goal of bringing really awful supernatural crap into the world, and you get both of them. So especially in your book where you've got both of those elements very present, what's the balancing act there? Is that something you are conscious of going into the book? Like, oh, I'm spending too much time with the humans. I need some more supernatural spookies in here. Or, ah, this is too many supernatural spookies in a row. I need to ground this thing again. How did you try to balance the human elements and the supernatural elements in this story so that one didn't become overbearing to another? What was what was the trick for the balancing act there for you? I kept a lot of sort of the classic 70s horror in my mind while I was writing it. I was thinking a lot about The Exorcist. I was thinking a lot about the uh, Rosemary's Baby. I was thinking about Suffer the Children, which I don't think was 70s. I think that might have been 80s. I could be wrong. John Saul, Suffer the Children. but um. I was thinking about those things and how it, they all three of those really did a nice balancing act of here's some hum, uh, human element. Oh, and there's a spooky thing, human element, spooky thing, human element, spooky thing. And I didn't want the number one thing that I didn't want was to have the couple in the book kind of pitted against each other at any point in their belief or, or interpretation of what is going on, even though they they look at things slightly different as to what's going on. I didn't want them to ever be like, oh, you're just being crazy or anything like that, because I'm really tired of seeing that in horror movies. I could not be more bored by the whole like, are you crazy? You don't believe what's happening? Oh, honey, there's a rational explanation for it. Yeah, the, shut up. You're in a horror movie. Like, just acknowledge the fact that like what's going on is not something you could just explain right away. There is the supernatural element to it. So I, I did not want to do that in this book. I it's so repulsive to me to see, um, you know, the the one character gaslit uh, by another while horror is going on. It's absolutely repugnant. So that was a, a conscious thing that I wanted to avoid. That said, it does take the couple a long time to sort of realize like, OK, this is clearly like or this is an idea of what's happening because they both have their own interpretations of the supernatural that are going on. One believes it's a haunting. The other one does not believe it's a haunting. So it's but they do believe that something is going on. They do. They share that common ground. So breaking the chapters up. Alola chapter and Ian chapter back and forth like that. Allowed me to sort of play with their two perspectives as well. So there wasn't a lot of like, well, something really scary has to happen here because you do get a lot of their day in, day out stuff, especially with Ian. Less spooky stuff happens to Ian. And you kind of realize why towards the end of the book, there's a little bit of hints about like the first quarter. And then you realize why the spooky things don't happen to him as much as they do Lola. But he does experience some things. His stuff is a little more internalized than hers. Hers is a little more um, external and her trying to fend off the external concepts going on. His are very internal. And he struggles with that a lot. So I think having those two different approaches uh, helped balance, you know, the human element from the supernatural as well. And, and when I think of cults specifically, I, it's almost like thinking of any kind of group, right? Any kind of like nefarious group. 
you know, like personally, I don't, you know, when I'm watching like a, a superhero movie or whatever, and like the bad guys, right? Like Ultron in Age of Ultron, not a bad plan. <laughs> it's it's not. He's really he makes a lot of really good points until they force the whole like, well, I'm going to destroy half of the planet with a nuclear bomb or whatever. Like that's stupid. But you know, you have to look at a group from their perspective. So in this case the group that's, you know, involved with what's going on, they don't believe what they're doing is bad. Like they're not, you know, you have to have sympathy, right? It's like you have to look at, you know, it's it's like an understanding of different religions, you know, like you have to look at other religions from their perspective and you have to look at other groups from their perspectives. And they're not the bad guys, really. They just want something different than what our protagonists want. And unfortunately, that drives the conflict towards the end of the novel. However, I still don't know that the 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 group uh, towards the end of the vile thing we created, I don't think that they're totally in the wrong. They just want things to be a little bit different. It's just their way of going about making things different is a particularly eerie and uncomfortable sort of plan, I guess. Yeah, and that, okay, so there's a lot of different ways we can take this conversation right now. I think that's a really good point for us to spin off into a conversation about Rosemary's Baby, though. Mm -hmm. Because in Rosemary's Baby, the cult is clearly nefarious. They are, they are trying to bring the spawn of the devil into this world and using this unwilling woman as their vessel, very similar to the in the vile thing we created not exact parallels but close uh they're they're glancing off each other clearly so what uh let me formulate my question here what in your mind creates evil in a cult in a group in in a sense that they're clearly the antagonists. They clearly must be stopped because we're, we're kind of painting in different shades of the same color here. So sure. the Satanists in Rosemary baby, Rosemary's baby, clearly evil. The satanic temple on Twitter nowadays, really funny. Love them. Uh, Super they cool. had a bunch of great stuff. The, the cult in, yeah, there's the sticker. <laughs> um, <laughs> But their their whole mission statement isn't go be evil. It's 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 its own thing. And yeah. then in the vile thing we created, we've also got a cult with like not truly evil intentions. If we're trying to put it on a spectrum, but maybe somewhere mm-hmm. in the gray area. So how do we how do we define those different areas in your mind? I think you know with Rosemary's baby, she's literally raped, um, which is you know, a violating act. And it's obviously an act that she did not sign up for. You know, it it was not a dream. It was really happening. And uh, she was raped. That's a horrible, horrible thing. And so that creates right away. We know that they're bad news because a, they're all in the room watching it happen, watching a woman be raped literally by the devil. And also their reasoning is be- it's not even so much their reason because we don't know specifically why. And again, I haven't read Rosemary's Baby, the sequel book that Ira Levin did. Um, I've only read the original text. 
and I've seen the movie a million times. Uh, I've read the book like five times or whatever. But we don't know the specifics as to why they want to bring the child. Bless you. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. <laughs> Um, I didn't know if um, I didn't know that like (laughs) I didn't I don't you know we don't know why they're bringing uh, the devil back you know they might have all good intentions you know first of all that black bassinet at the end is awesome as shit if I had a baby I I want it it's awesome it's so cool but like the act itself of how they get Rosemary to have the child that's evil Guy's manipulation of her in Rosemary's baby, the the gaslighting and everything, that is evil. Their manipulation of her is evil. That's terrible. The vile thing we created, they make the decision themselves, the couple, Lola and Ian, and it just so happens that this external group works you know, there were some strings being pulled and there's some stuff going on behind the scenes. However, we know why they want to do it. It's not like in Rosemary's Baby, we don't know why they want to bring about the Satan child. In The Vile Thing We Created, we know that they want change. They want to change the world. And they tried once before and failed. And now that they're doing it again with Lola and Ian's kid, Jonesy, and uh, I feel so much for that little kid. But because of um, Jonesy's existence, there is a possibility that he could change the world or that he will change the world. And I think, and, and to sort of introduce like, you know, the, the other elements, I guess, the, the, um, the idea of like, well, is that evil? Is, what, is their change evil? No, to them, it's not evil. Um, but again, we don't know in Rosemary's Baby, but in The Vile Thing We Created, they believe that it'll be a good thing for the planet that this this being has been brought or this being has been created from the ether, has been pulled from, you know, the gossamer threads of dimensional nebula into our world. They believe that it's a good thing. Whereas in Rosemary's Baby, we're automatically led to believe that it's they want it for bad reasons. You know, and even like you can like joke around and say like Ghostbusters 2, <laughs> it, it was for bad reasons to bring Vigo back, which is, you know, it's it's almost like the, the coin flip version of Rosemary's Baby. But those are clearly nefarious reasons, right? Even without knowing why they brought why Rosemary was raped by the devil and the kid was brought here. Even then, even if we don't know, we can assume because it is the child of the devil. We have these preconceived notions that like, well, it's got to be bad, right? It has to be bad. Meanwhile, the Satanic Temple is all about just, you know, the, the, the cherishing of oneself and the the emphasis of the self over, you know, not not even over the community, but over predisposed notions. Which I think is awesome. I, I'm not a member of the Satanic Temple, but their core tenets make a lot of sense to me. And I think they do to a lot of people if you really just look at them, other than the fact that they call themselves the Satanic Temple. You know, I think their numbers would be a lot higher. Uh, I do know one person who is a member, one of the nicest people in the horror community. It, that's one of the things that strikes me about the book is just everything you were just talking about was you don't approach it with these preconceived notions of good and evil, like a lot of the other films and books and things in this sort of an avenue do. You talk about the omen uh, with a with a 
like demon kid and the kids the kid's bad rosemary's baby the the cult is bad silent hill pyramid head bad um yeah but in the wild thing we've created it's all it's all personalized you can't just put it in a box and say the child is evil because they're not um and you can't say the cult is evil because they're not you can't say lola's evil or eden's evil they're not you can't even say they're good because in a lot of ways and cases they're not it's all this gray area mingling and i really appreciated that oh awesome no i'm glad thank you yeah I think we we all live in a gray area. Like, I know that maybe that's like a a silly sort of a cliche thing to say, but like we do like the world is gray area. It just is. There's not really, you know, we think we make the right decisions. We hope we make the right decisions. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. And, you know, I think in this case, Lola and Ian, they make the best decision that they can. They make a series of the best decisions that they possibly can. And do they work out? No, not all of them. Some of them do, some of them don't. But again, I think you just have to have the perspective. Like, uh, we can't have these people are evil because they're evil. These people are are good because they're good. Like, there has to be more of that, like, in-between area where we all actually live. And that's all I was kind of hoping to do uh, with this book is just show, like, these aren't great people. These aren't terrible people. They're just people dealing with something horrifying. Other side note, we have completely derailed the idea of we'll talk through the book sequentially. We've already hit on the ending. We're working in the middle now. This this show has no structure and I love it. Let's just <laughs> lean into it at this point. I want to kind of go on record here for a second as just raving about this book here. It's it's the end of March. I'm already going to go ahead and put my flag in the ground here and say that this is going to be my favorite book of the year. There is no way that another book is going to hit me the same way that this one did. Because I want to talk for a little bit about the human element of the book. As I am reading this, the struggles that you put this family through, you were throwing freaking darts at me every other chapter. I'm just going to go through and list some of the things you called me specifically out on while I was reading this to the point where I had to put the book down and walk away from it sometimes because this is amazing. I have to get through it, but I can't right now. Thing one, you've got the teacher getting frustrated and disillusioned with their profession. The very subtle real world horror of doing everything you can in the job that you love and getting basically punished for it. Next, you had the utter dread surrounding a guy who does not want to become one of quote unquote those parents seeing all the creepy culty bullshit that some other people associate with child raising and being worried that they're going to stumble into it, you have fears of becoming a new parent and having no clue what the hell you're in for even before the supernatural angle comes in, and you tackled postpartum depression perfectly from the female's perspective and from the male's perspective, and you never see that. 
it got to the point that I was genuinely concerned you had gone through my Twitter feed from when I had my first child <laughs> and were finding things to call me out on. <laughs> it wow. was amazing that you managed to and also awful because i hate all of those headspaces but it was yeah. amazing how you dragged me into each and every one of those well how did you do that dude i know that's way too broad of a question no that is really really kind of you to say so i i really i can't thank you enough uh for all of that that like i almost started crying actually when you said very emotional guy. Yeah. I so I, I and just, we can hit any of those you want to. Yeah. We can break those down one by one or hit them all sure. at once. Like, yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, the the teacher getting frustrated and disillusioned with their profession. That's that's something I've been feeling for a few years now as an educator. I, I've tried so often um to do things outside the box to make things interesting for the students and just gotten swatted down. 85% of the time, 90% of the time, put together a unit on the only good Indians. And I was really excited to teach it. <clears throat> I was going to ask Stephen Graham Jones if he would zoom in and talk to the class. This is for my high level senior AP students. And I was told, no, nope, you can't do that. It's about Native Americans. It'll be too triggering to our student body. What does that even mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, a bunch of white kids are going to be afraid to learn about Native Americans. Like, well, I don't. So that was really that was really sort of the beginning of, of like me stopping to try to. And I had this amazing unit planned out. I was so excited about it. Now it's going to go to waste. A guy who does not want to become one of those parents. So I've seen it happen so often with all almost all of my male friends who've had children they change. They and you know, in many positive ways, they change. It's just another phase of life. However, the last thing I ever want to be is the dads that I describe in the book. And unfortunately, that's ninety something percent of the dads that I see: the polo shirt wearing, the Bud Light drinking. I find none of it interesting. And it, it scares me a little bit. I, it's just having your own identity co-opted by the, the concept of becoming a parent. It's so uh, strange, not only for men, but obviously for women as well. And other individuals, you know, everybody who falls on the spectrum of gender, like falling into these, you know, roles or whatever you want to say, it changes you. It changes you so much. And I worry about that. So that was my own fear of possibly ever becoming a dad. And, you know, I would not want that. Not that I wouldn't want to be a dad, but not that I would I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want my identity to change so much. You know, these were guys that like we would go out and party, party like crazy up until our like early 30s. And then the kids started coming and it was like we, we could still go out. The grandmother's next door. Like, you're, we could do this. Give the kid a Benadryl and let's go out. You know? And it, it, those days got less and less. And, you know, thankfully I have some other child-free friends um, and couple friends and stuff like that. But 
I saw it. Be, I, I really saw it starting when my friends co- started coupling off and another friend of mine, one of my best friends and I were single still, and we were still drinking, smoking cigars and having a good time. And all of our other friends are going out to dinners, doing couples nights. We're doing a couples night. We're going to a concert as a couple. And I found it so repugnant and I kept it inside and it kind of ate away at me because it's like. I'm, you know, we're we all have a good time together, you know, and it's like we should all be together. There shouldn't be a couples thing. I just it really just bit at me. Fears of becoming a new parent. Yeah, I can't even fathom that. That is the most existential horror that I could possibly think of. I know that my wife would be an incredible mom. It's it's a fact. I don't know that I would be a good dad. And that would kill me because my father was incredible. And I would want to be as good as him. I know that I couldn't because I am way more selfish than he was. So that fear is very within me. And now maybe I'll have one of these moments where I I look into my child's eyes and the music swells over the soundtrack and I fall instantly in love and my identity changes. Maybe that would happen. Maybe. I don't know that it would, though. I'm very selfish. I wouldn't be able to go to all these conventions and stuff if I, you know, if I had a kid, I just wouldn't be able to. And postpartum depression. I did a lot of research into postpartum depression. I read a lot of white papers about it, but I also talked to friends, wives, and mothers and stuff like that. And the the most interesting thing that I read was that the postpartum depression as it affects because this is a this is an interracial couple uh, or a biracial couple, rather, I guess you would say. And Lola is African-American and postpartum depression. Hits uh, there's a, a raft of issues that go along with being a woman of color, having a child in America to begin with. But the postpartum depression. Aspect of it is particularly um, sharp and not that not to say that postpartum depression in general is not a brutal thing to go through but in the case of a woman of color in america having all of those issues on top of it is just horrifying but i also thought about like you know when my wife is not in in a you know something happens with like a friend of hers or or whatever something that just brings my wife down right and i'm unable to help her out of it just that absolute and and the way that you put it the the helplessness i think about that and that is such a minuscule thing compared to the idea of introducing another life into the equation and adding the depression on top of it the way that i feel when i'm unable to make my wife happy again when she's depressed it's like i feel like a failure and i can't imagine feeling that on like a macro level. So that was kind of where that came from. I just sort of like threw myself into what that would feel like. And I'm glad to hear that it resonated. I'll have to go back and look at your tweets about (laughs) being a new dad. (laughs) I know that, you know, and again, it's not easy. And that's like another thing too. Like we don't really hear the, and I'm not saying like, Oh, we need the men's side of everything. No, we don't need the men's side of everything. (laughs) You know, but like I am a man and I I 
looked at it from how I would look at it. The only way that I could look at postpartum depression from the woman's perspective is by reading and talking to other women who've gone through it. So that was, you know, that was really educational for me. And, uh, yeah, just especially learning what, what women of color go through in this country when it comes to having children was just like eye opening in every horrifying way. Yes. <laughs> yes to everything. That is the worst host response possible. Like I'm supposed to no. yes and or whatever else, but just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so heavy. <laughs> let's let's bring it back a little bit to the the loss of your own identity, um, because I think that's a really good running theme in Rosemary's Baby too. Um, we yeah. see Rosemary constantly being gaslit and forced into this life that she wasn't really choosing by Guy, perfect name, mm. um, by Guy who just wants her to help him fulfill his own like earthly desires, yeah. um, get ahead in his job and everything else. Um, so I, I think there's this really interesting parallel there with like what it means to bring a kid in the into the world and to lose a little bit of yourself. Like I'm no longer William Sterling. I'm Craig's dad to mm -hmm. so many people and that'll never change. Yeah. And that like, they don't care anything deeper about me. They don't care anything else. It's just, that's my association with that one individual. And that's the end of the story for me now. Yeah. And that's, that's so deeply troubling but it's also something that so many women have been dealing with throughout history like oh you're no longer whatever your name was you are now mrs so-and-so just Correct. like don't even keep your last name like scrap that like you're yeah you're so-and-so's mom and you're so-and-so's wife and that's that's your story now like it just ah it all gets so gross it's weird, right? Like we, you know, and I think thankfully, like our generation is obviously much better about that stuff than previous generations were, you know, like, you know, my wife and I, you know, she still uses her last name and stuff. And like, I don't care, <laughs> you know, like I, I really I, I don't care if we were to have a kid and that kid had her last name. I, I don't I don't care. It doesn't matter to me, but it's like. That weird and, and again, this plays into the whole parenting thing too. the societal pressures that have been on women, like you said, forever to do the lion's share of the work while the dad goes off to work every day and does whatever nonsense job and then comes home and is like, well, honey, where's my martini and steak? Like, it's just it, like what, dude, like shoulder some of the responsibility, bro. And and then, like, you know, you wonder also, too, about, like, those roles going back to, like, the 1950s, right? Why so many women were addicted to amphetamines. So many women were alcoholics because of the societal pressure. And, you know, thankfully, we have better understanding of that stuff now. But the societal pressure is still there. It's still there. And I put some of that into the book, too, because I remember having conversations with people who had just had one kid and they were like, well, we want to have two. So we're going to start trying again in like six months. And I'm like, you just had one. You just had one. And like, it was hell for your fiance to have this kid. Like she could have died. Well, we want two. 
that's psychotic to me. Like, I can't fathom that. I can't wrap my head around it. And it's just when you ask why and they can't give you an answer. And maybe it's me because it's like, well, we want to. And that's enough for them. But in my mind, that why do you know how expensive a kid is in America today? Like that. And I, I, these are all things that I think about and probably why my wife and I will never have kids because it's just so astronomically expensive. And we live in New York. Like I can't, if we lived somewhere else where it was cheaper to live, maybe, but it's just too expensive here. It's just too expensive here. And, and the expense of having a child is insane. So I just don't, I don't, I think about all these things and it's like a rational thing. So like in thinking about these things myself and these conversations that my wife and I have actually had, I wanted to put versions of those conversations in the book with Ian and Lola to sort of sprinkle throughout to like, you know, hopefully the reader gets like, they're not rushing into this idea. They're certainly not having a kid to like save their marriage, which I've seen people do. <laughs> We've all well, seen. And that's that. the worst mistake. Yeah. Because you're, you're introducing an innocent life into a, a, a toxic situation. They're not doing that. They're doing it because they, they love each other so much and they truly believe that they're ready for this adventure. And that's important to have. And I think those conversations should happen more with you know normal people, uh, not just in fiction. Yeah. And then bringing it back to the trope a little bit, back when you were saying like these people are hell bent on having another child and you ask why and they don't know. If you ask somebody why they're doing something and they can't give you a rational explanation for why they're making big life choice, culty bullshit. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Um, And the book gets into that a little bit too. Like all of these parents kind of form a parent cult and it's not some supernatural thing necessarily. We don't know, but like, the the parents have their own like rituals that they conduct together and they have their own secret meetings that they conduct together and it it gets weird and culty and not in the like evil way like we were talking about the spectrum earlier but it's still weird and culty yeah and it's i i just i just being excluded from those things was so frustrating to me uh by all my friends and and i've had the same friend group most of them I've known since kindergarten. That's how long I've known these people. And so to see this sort of, and it's not really a rejection, but it's at the same time very uncomfortable in the sense that it's, you know, you've known me most of my life and now all of a sudden I'm not good enough because I haven't squirted out a kid. Like that doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem fair. And when you start seeing them all together with their gaggle of kids and it's and the, the 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 really shitty part of it is and you know I'm a teacher obviously right so like I work with kids but like I really like little kids like I think little kids are so funny and so cute and so ridiculous and I just think that their minds work in such beautiful weird ways that us as adults could like never connect to not anymore. Anyway, we've been through too much. Like the world has made us like worse, but children still have that fun way of looking at the world. And I love that. I get so juiced up by that. Like when I spend time with kids and I get to see that it was like that with my niece and nephew when they were younger, they're like 11 now. So like that's, you know, unfortunately the, 
the real world is seeping into them. But like the younger you are, like my friend has a kid. He's like two. And uh, I think he's like two. And he has this cool like he has like this Ryan Gosling and drive type jacket that they got him. (laughs) And he has this little car that like my friend pushes him in. And this kid is I just like. I make memes of him as Gosling and Drive all the time. Every time he sends me a picture of him in this jacket, I'm like, this kid is outrageous. But like, it's stuff like that, you know, like the little guys and the little girls are like so funny and so cute and so ridiculous. Like my my wife's friend kid, they have three kids and all three of them are, I haven't met the new one, but like the other two are super cute and funny. But like I went over their house, we went over there for barbecue and the little girl took my hand and was like, I want to show you this tree stump. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go take a look. See, we go and we look and she's like, you see all the ants? And I was like, I do. I was like, I see all the ants. And she was like, but we don't touch the ants. <laughs> and I was like, correct. We don't touch. Yep. And then she was like, do you want to dance? <laughs> like, it's just the way kids' minds work is so thrilling to me and so interesting. So much more interesting than how my friends' minds work. So like in many ways, I'd <laughs> like, yeah, getting to hang out with my friends is cool. But getting to see how their kids are like funny and weird that's even better. Like that's plussing it to me. So being excluded from that sucks. And I wanted to kind of talk about that in the book in some way. Yeah. It comes across really well as far as driving the narrative. And then also very genuinely, there are so many scenes worked into this book that, again, I had to put down and walk away from because like I'm enjoying the hell out of this narrative. But Mm. that scene just brought me back to this specific party where that specific thing happened to me. And I just don't need to be there right now. So I'll come back to it in a couple of days. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, let's, we are, we are already at time and there's a whole avalanche of stuff I still want to talk about. So sure. Let's let's crack open the fun stuff now. So we've gotten through the human element, the the pain and the cultness of that. The supernatural elements that result from all of this are very silent hill in their vibe, in your presentation of them. So I just wanted to give you the floor first to try to introduce those as Ian and Lola are creating this vile thing. It's not Mm. just an evil baby narrative. What else is at play here? Yeah. I wrote a short story a while back that was published in an anthology and it dealt with a man confronting something in his past in a town called Kirkbride's Bluff. And the town itself, I sort of presented as very Silent Hill inspired and also with like a heavy dash of Twilight Zone. But then again, Silent Hill has a healthy dash of Twilight Zone to begin with. Right. So like and I kept thinking in my mind, like, I want to keep going back to Kirkbride's Bluff. And I wonder if I could build that out more and play around with it more and make it sort of this like upstate New York town that is kind of looked at as like a ghost town in a lot of ways. And I was just thinking in my head, like, well, Konami's not doing anything with the Silent Hill series. And then lo and behold, last year, they literally announced like a million projects. But 
you know, they weren't doing anything with Silent Hill. So we weren't getting any kind of Silent Hill type content, really. There's only so many first person computer horror games that I can play. So I needed to scratch the itch. So Kirkbride's Bluff to me became my Silent Hill. And I didn't want to go like super deep into like why the town is like that. However, in the vile thing we created, I do give some hints as to why that town could be like that. So if, you know, Silent Hill has any big influence on this book, it's definitely Kirkbride's Bluff. And it's this weird kind of swirling history that people know about more or less. Some people know more than others. There's a historical society that specifically is like some bad shit went down in that town. But they don't, you know, they're not like open with the information because it is kind of a blight on the area. It would be like if in um, Terrytown, New York, that, you know, there was something horrifying that had happened there at some point. Well, property values would go down significantly. So like this is sort of like a best kept secret kind of thing or worst kept secret situation. And Kirkbride's Bluff is basically the Robert O'Tone version of Silent Hill, where there's a lot of things in there. And it is specific to who goes in. If you go in, but at the same time, it's you can't contain it or you're you're not really able to contain the vileness that's there really anymore. And that's sort of how it plays a part in the narrative here, because they do go near Kirkbride's bluff. We do hear about something that happened in Kirkbride's bluff and it does drive the story in that the cult in the book did set up shop in Kirkbride's bluff originally before things went to shit. But yeah, Silent Hill is a very big influence on everything that I write. Even my YA novel, there was a Silent Hill uh, influence to that for sure. But yeah, Silent Hill is probably my favorite horror franchise of any type. Even though, you know, a lot of people don't like the second movie. I don't I don't have as much of a problem with it. I, I do think the first movie is fantastic. And I look forward to the new one also. I think that'll be really cool. Let's, but, yeah. let's dig into that just a little bit more. I I don't want to spend too much time on the Silent Hill e things lurking in the vile thing we created because I think when they pop up in the book, not knowing what's going on and having absolutely no background for them helps it helps give them some power. So I don't want to rob readers of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're if you're still here and listening and 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 about to go buy the book, I don't want to steal that from you. So we'll pivot away from that to just. You said Silent Hill is one of your favorite series. Why? I think it just hits every kind of horror that I like, especially four and especially two. And I know that four is not like a super well-received one, but I think four handles loneliness, I think better than a lot of other video games handle loneliness. And uh, I was, I played that in college when it came out. Uh, I had taken a year off. Yeah, you play. Yeah, same, right? (laughs) I I didn't, you know, I had taken a year off from school. I wasn't happy at the first college that I was going, that I transferred to. Um, I was actually miserable, and I took a year off, and I played Silent Hill 4. And uh, I was feeling lonely, and I think it handles that really well. And um, 
you know, cause all my friends were at different schools and stuff like that. But it's also, it does, it's not afraid to take big swings silent Hill. And like, does it always connect? No, you know, downpour. I see in your notes, you have downpour, but yes. like, I don't mind downpour. I think downpour is a really interesting game, but it's also like one of the least well-received titles in the franchise. But I think it's interesting because some of those side missions are incredible and terrifying. And the overarching narrative of downpour is actually really interesting. The idea of like you're on death row, but you didn't really do it or did you do it? That stuff's really cool to me. And I think Silent Hill plays with not so much morality, better than other games, but I think it plays with the idea of us torturing ourselves better than any other form of media has. Uh, and I think that's why I love Silent Hill the most. I love it. So yeah, my my experience with Silent Hill was in college over the summer. Me and one of my friends both got jobs on campus and stuck around. And there's nothing going on on a college campus in the middle of the summer. <laughs> so uh, we... <laughs> we spent I think it was like two months straight every single night holed up in our in our dorm room just playing through Resident Evil 4 first and that got the itch going mm-hmm. we we're like this is cool this is great it's a shoot 'em up let's go and then we went to Silent Hill 2 because somehow we heard that they were similar and I don't I whatever interesting we played Silent Hill 2 and about halfway through it we just had to pause because like this is different this is so much deeper. This is so much more meaningful. It's not just a run and gun, which I, I love Resident Evil. I love the run and gun, mm-hmm. but, but Silent Hill. You get depth. Right. Totally different. So we, we went out and we got any of the Silent Hills that we could find, which for us was homecoming and downpour. And for whatever reason, we stumbled into a copy of the room. Cool. I've never played three to this day. I've never played the first one to this day. So the ones we picked and chose were really weird. I don't think so. Uh, one is fine. One is is good. And three is the direct sequel. And three is excellent. But, you know, you, you played... A lot of people consider it, like, the greatest video game of all time, Silent Hill 2. Like, so, I, you know, if that's the only one you ever played, I'd be like, that's perfectly reasonable like that's not there's nothing wrong with that but like homecoming is cool in the monster design and then those are incredible but also like homecoming is the most gutless because originally it was going to be called silent hill 5 for one thing and it was going to be dealing with specifically a veteran of a war in the middle east coming home and dealing with his ptsd in silent hill oh which like oh hi cool (laughs) jacob's ladder the video game sign me the fuck up (laughs) you know but like unfortunately that's not what we got what we did get was interesting though because homecoming shows the influence of silent hill spreading beyond the boundaries of silent hill in the same way that four did because four did the exact same thing so the two of them actually, in, in my opinion, work well narratively back to back. Whereas three works back to back with one and two is just like untouchable. It just stands on its own. I remember seeing a meme that was like, it's like a mom with multiple kids and, and the, she's like, 
oh, no, I don't have a favorite. I love you all equally. And then three out of the four kids go away and there's one still with her. And she's like, it's you. I love you the most. And they put <laughs> Silent Hill 2 over <laughs> <laughs> which like you know i get it I, and you know everybody's allowed to, to like whatever they like right so like I, you know am i one of those people who thinks two is the best yes i do do i think two is like the greatest video game of all time it's definitely in the discussion i would say it's top three but yeah i i'm a sucker for two i'm a sucker for four and i think the the potential of homecoming was there and I think downpour is interesting, but it has to be a fabulous experience playing it on an empty college campus at night. Like I would love that. Oh, it messed us up. There was, <laughs> there was a light outside in the hall that was always flickering and just like casting this flickering light under the door. And there was an elevator that hadn't been working since we started going to school there. Uh, and you like the doors were partially pried open. You could see down into the elevator shaft. And we were just like, we're, we're dead. <laughs> we're dead. <laughs> Pyramid head's going to show up. Walter Sullivan's going to show up and we are done. And that's the nurses are going to come twitching down the hallway. And we're just like, nah. <laughs> and the movies too, man, like the movie, the, the first movie's great for a lot of people think it's the greatest video game adaptation movie of all time. I, I, you know, I don't disagree. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a hard, you know, statement to make because there's so many. But like, and we certainly haven't seen the Mario movie yet because that looks great. So I don't know. But I think it could be. I, I think it, it definitely deserves the uh, that praise or whatever. Um, but Silent Hill is just so interesting. It's so it's so narratively narratively fertile for and and any horror author could bring anything to silent hill and do a really good job even the comic books were quite good and some of them some of them were swinging a miss there's like the grinning man which is like a serial killer kind of thing it's not as good but then there's like other ones that are like okay interesting and then you know there's people who made like fan films and stuff there's one fan film in particular that for some reason has james from silent hill 2 teaming up with Heather from Silent Hill 3 and it's just like a run and gun. It's a little ridiculous, but the effects and how they do the movie are actually pretty interesting. So, you know, there's a lot of different things. The I think the only way that Silent Hill does not work is as a pachenko machine, which is what uh Konami had for a long time. Uh, thoughts and hopes on the upcoming third film. Thoughts and hopes for the upcoming third film. It's supposed to be an adaptation of Silent Hill 2, which is, you know, I'm into that. I'm into that. I, I thought that the um, the plot description of, oh, James is searching for his long lost love in, in the town of Silent Hill. I was like, mm, all right, I get that it has to be a misdirect for the normies. Because going into that movie, knowing that James is a piece of shit who killed his wife. Spoilers. Yeah. (laughs) No, we dropped the spoiler tag at the beginning. We're good. (laughs) You know, I guess knowing that would be pretty rough, but I I do think it's, it has an uphill battle ahead of it because I think people are going to be like, oh, Silent Hill and whatever. But um, I think the movie coupled with all the new games and all the new experiences they have planned are particularly exciting. I could not care less about the Silent Hill 2 remake. I'm not interested. I don't like playing any of these remakes or remasters or anything like that. It's like, I've been through that experience. I just don't care. Give me something new. 
but I I'm so excited for the other games that they have coming out. Like the uh, there's the Silent Hill F, which has like the uh, cherry blossom head creature, the, the Japanese inspired one, right? Oh God, yes, yes. that's going to be completely insane. I felt like actual excitement watching their like big Silent Hill announcement thing. I've actually watched it three times because I'm a nerd. But yeah, I'm excited about it. I think the movie will be fine. I I, I do appreciate that Christoph Gans does legitimately care about Silent Hill. Like he does love Silent Hill. He's wrong when he says that a man can't experience horror. And that's why he changed the lead character in the first movie to the mother as opposed to the dad. He's dead wrong there. But, you know, that could have been a studio thing. So I don't want to circle back to the book because I think we've talked about it just to the brink of starting to spoil and ruin stuff. So I, I, I kind of want to leave the book where it is. Uh, we talked about Rosemary's Baby a couple of times as we were in the middle there and we hit on Silent Hill here at the end. Anything else we should double back to? Any more thoughts for us on cults and horror here? No, I think, you know, I think we touched it all. Uh, you said it all. You said it all. I think uh, I think we got there. Yeah. Nice. All right. So then final questions here for everybody that was listening that had a good time. Where can they connect with you? What what are your socials? Uh, do you have any future projects that you want to pitch? Obviously, the vile thing we created coming out in April, but uh, anything else to put on our radars? Sure. Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Robert Otone. I have a small press, Spooky House Press. Uh, we have a lot of really fun, exciting stuff coming out um, in the immediate and in the future as well. The immediate future and the near future, whatever you want to say. And yeah, I have some other things coming out. I have two books coming out with Weird House Press, and I have a book coming out with Cemetery Gates. All of them I'm excited for, but the, the first one is going to be with Weird House Press, and it's called Curse of the Cobb Man. And it is a bizarro, giallo, slasher folk horror hybrid it is bonkers it's the weirdest thing i've ever written and it has one of the craziest creatures that i've ever come up with in the book and i'm really excited about it and uh i'm just thankful to weird house uh for giving me the opportunity but um yeah so there's that and you know the vile thing we created is out in april mid-april april 18th so Get your refund and uh, buy my book. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a joy. You are a you are great to talk with. I had so much fun. Dude, you're you're very sweet. I appreciate it. I love the show. Like I, you know, like I told I told you, the only one I haven't listened to is the Todd Keesling one. So it's the only one where I'm saving it. It's I. Todd is amazing just like you are. So uh, I hope when you circle around to it, it does not disappoint because he had some thoughts on small towns and how evil they can be. Yeah. We should do a crossover episode with you and Todd talking about spooky small towns and all their secrets. Yeah, I would be down. 
We'll have to come up with some sort of a fresh spin on it. Since now we've talked about cults and we've talked about small towns, so we couldn't just do a cult small town. Um, we'll figure it out. We'll we'll talk in the margins. But yeah, for everybody listening at home, thank you so much for tuning in. This closes us out for the week. But before you go, please don't forget to like or subscribe or, I don't know, walk into the mist. Uh, it'll be totally fine. Sacrifice the soul of your firstborn child to the streaming service of your choice, uh, and uh, and stay smooth, stay spooky. God, I can't even close out the episode this time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>